Welcome to Bible Study. This is Nick Krita, your host. Thank you for tuning in. It's our uh, pleasure and privilege to welcome you to uh, Faith FM broadcast uh, today on our Bible study. We are going to talk about end time deceptions. I believe this will be a very good program. Please uh, stay with us and we are going to share some important and very interesting things today. I would like to welcome our panel for today. It's good to have you with us, uh, Will. Thank you, Nick. It's good to be here. Denise, it's also good to have you part of this. It's wonderful to be part of the panel, Nick. Brenton, welcome to Bible Study. Thank you, Nick. Uh, coming to you for the very last time from the southeast of South Australia. We're looking forward to see you here in Adelaide. Thank you. Lydia, it's also good to have you uh, part of this. Yeah, I feel very privileged. Praise the Lord. Jerry, thank you for joining us. Nice to be here, Nick. Thank you. Len, it's good to have you part of the program too. Hello, listeners. You'll find this a very interesting Bible study today. Special welcome to Joe today. It's good to have you with us, Joe. And most of all, thank you so much for uh, preparing this uh, Bible study and you are going to facilitate the discussion. It's good to have you part of this uh, program. Thank you, Nick. As always, it's an absolute pleasure. And uh, Joe, we no further comments. I would love to hand it over to you. Please uh, take us through. Thank you, Nick. The belief that the soul lives on and remains conscious in some form after a person dies is responsible for many present-day misconceptions. Last week, we studied the natural progression of the belief in an immortal soul into accepted church doctrines in mainstream churches, such as an ever-burning hell and purgatory. And these aren't the only ones, but we did discuss these last week, both of which are non-biblical and alien to Christ's teachings. This week, we will be exploring how the belief in an immortal soul has influenced popular culture in the form of mysticism and spiritualism. Does the Bible or Jesus's teaching support these phenomena? What does scripture say about these? Some beliefs such as reincarnation and ancestor worship are held dearly as truth by genuine believing people. Spiritism and communication with the dead, otherwise known as necromancy, will also be considered. For some, it is just entertainment. For others, it is a heartfelt searching for answers. Some who are troubled or grieving will believe what they are told during seances and readings because something very private, which is only known by the departed and the seeker, is supplied as evidence for its veracity. They hinge their faith on an experience because they don't see and don't know of any other explanation. In other cases, a person might experience what is termed an NDE or a near-death experience, and this convinces them that they have actually seen or communicated with the departed or even God. Sometimes the experience is euphoric and sometimes, unfortunately, very frightening to the one involved. Some beliefs and experiences discussed today are very precious to those who adhere to them. Hence, our discussion aims to respectfully present what the Bible teaches about them. But it is now time to commence our panel discussion, and I would like to invite Brenton to open with prayer. Certainly, uh, Joe. Father in heaven, we thank you that the Bible teaches that you are the resurrection and the life. We thank you that all of us can have faith and confidence in that resurrection because Jesus rose 
from the dead, we too can look forward to this in the future. We thank you, Lord, that the topic that we're going to study today, we invite and plead for your Holy Spirit to open our minds, not only that we may understand, Lord, but that we may share accurately what your word teaches with those who are listening today. Bless Joe as she leads us in the study and as we contribute, Lord. May your Holy Spirit speak to us and through us. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Brenton. I think that this topic really needs no further introduction because everyone would be familiar with the extent of the fascination with the supernatural and life after death. It's everywhere. Modern mysticism is not new. But goes back, goes back to the Garden of Eden. It begins with the very first lie recorded in scripture, that of you shall not surely die. And this has given birth to a myriad of industries in entertainment, movies, books, clairvoyance, tarot readings, to witchcraft, superstition, magic, Ouija boards, etc. I'm sure we could name a few more. It is also common for people who don't even believe in God to refer to the death of someone close to them as having gone to heaven. Even atheists have been said to have gone to heaven by others. So let us look at some of these and how might they be interpreted through the lens of scripture. What does the Bible say? Do my personal desires and wishes, even experiences, how, no matter how good they may be, override what the Bible says? The Bible study today as Nick mentioned, is titled End Time Deceptions. Denise, so what is a deception? How would you define it? Well, I've looked up uh, the Oxford Dictionary for the definition of deception, and it says this, the act of deliberately making someone believe something that is not true, the act of causing someone to accept as true something that is false or to give a false impression. So I thought I'd compare that with what the Bible says about uh, deception. And the Bible talks about uh, Lucifer or Satan in John 8.44 as uh, the father of lies. And I contrasted that with Psalms 31.5, which talks about God being called the God of truth. So if we have Lucifer, who is the father of lies, he is the father of deception. He's trying to deceive the whole world. Uh, about God and God, which is found in Revelation 12, 9. And on the other hand, God is called the God of truth. And interestingly, it was Jesus who called him the father of lies. Yeah, so that's very pertinent. Thank you. Jerry, why would Satan want to deceive us? I think the answer lies in the fact that, um, that Satan is motivated by a hatred of God and the truth of God. Uh, Jesus describes himself as the way, the truth, and the life. And uh, and we know that Satan can no longer attack Jesus, so he's now fully focused on deceiving every person on earth who embraces the truth as it is in Jesus. He is motivated by hatred, and he's full of rage. In in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, we read, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion walketh about seeking whom he may devour. And further in Revelation chapter 12, verse 12, it talks about uh, the devil descending down to the earth. And it says, Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea, for the devil has come down to you having great wrath because he knows he has a short time. 
So he's trying to take down, if you like, as many people as he can with him. He is motivated by one thing only, and that is hatred of God and the truth of God and those who wish to follow God. And I, I guess he gets, he does hurt Christ in the sense that if he can actually separate those he loves from him, from Christ, that hurts Christ. And so that's his motive in that, um, you know, separating his people, his children away from God. Yes. So we can see that Satan is trying to deceive as many as possible from what you've read, Jerry, because his time is short and he has put out, pulled out all the stops. He uses every opportunity where there is and where there is none, he creates one. He has a life for every occasion. And so, Will, how is it that Satan is so effective? Well, the Bible tells us that Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Um, 2 Corinthians 11 verse 14 says, No wonder, for Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. It is not surprising then if his servants also masquerade as servants of righteousness. Their end will be what their actions deserve. The Bible self, the Bible text itself, Joe, suggests something sinister when it uh, uses the word disguise or masquerade mm-hmm. in other translations. I think he has a lot to hide behind the mask. He wants us to think that he is an agent for good and that he is truthful, loving, and able to help us. All the things that God really is. To portray himself otherwise would not be very good or appealing to the majority of people. Satan appears as a creature of light to draw us to himself and his lies. But the Bible uncovers this deception by plainly saying, as we have already read, be alert and of a sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour. That's First Peter 5 and verse 8. And I guess one of the greatest deceptions is that people don't think he exists, um, and that is a clever disguise. Now, while spiritualism, the occult, and mysticism in all its forms has existed from the very beginning, there was an explosion in the interest in all things spiritual and supernatural. Lynn, tell us about the birth or rather the rebirth of modern spiritualism. When is it said to have happened and how did it develop? All right, it's interesting to notice the methods the devil uses. It's uh, to provide something mysterious, make people curious, and this is exactly what happened in the 1840s. Modern spiritualism actually began in 1848 in Hydesville, New York, where the two sisters, the Fox sisters, Maggie and Kate, were communicating with an evil spirit in their home through wrappings. That's not wrapping parcels, but knocking on the wall, wrappings and knockings. These girls became a phenomenon long before they were communicating with spirits and um, they were presenting to people in front of hundreds of people. 
And soon, spiritual mediums could be found in almost every town. It grew very, very quickly. And America's new religion had taken root and showed no signs of stopping. It'd be safe to say that this continues to be popular as people try to contact their departed loved ones via some form. Now, before Will and... um he was talking about the deception, and this is definitely a deception. It is real, but the deception lies in the fact that people think they may be communicating with loved ones who have died. That's the deception. The actual mediums, the spirits, are real. Yes, well, apparently in this case, uh, they believed that it was the the dead peddler that had died some year, five years or so previously. So they didn't think that this was the devil. They actually thought that these were real spirits of dead people, as you've said. And because it's become so popular, Lynn, we often hear people going to see a fortune teller or getting a reading. I, I personally know of people who've been to see a clairvoyant and, um, and we might have even been tempted to go and see you know, see, you know, tempted to go ourselves at some point in our lives. Would that be, why would that be not a good idea, Nick? Yes, um, Joe and panel. I mean, first of all, um, I would like to say what uh, Len was just sharing that, uh, you know, it's good to know the roots of modern spiritism. But I would like to say this. I grew up in a communist country in a very orthodox environment. And we didn't know anything about those two sisters in the United States. You know, we didn't know anything of those uh, things happening. But deception was still there in uh, Romania among uh, the people who pretended to know God and serve God. And I would like to say that the most important thing is to know the truth. You know how it is with deception? If you have even uh, uh, some false uh, monetary going around, you know, those people who study this, they are not focusing on the deceptions. They are focusing on the real thing to know what it says, what's the reality. And that's where we are invited. I would like to read actually a passage uh, from the Bible in Isaiah chapter 8 and verse 19 says this. Someone may say to you, and this is from New Living Translation. If you have another translation, please check that too. Let's ask the mediums and those who consult the spirits of the dead. With their whispering and muttering, they will tell us what to do. But shouldn't people ask God for guidance? Should the living seek guidance from the dead? And it's interesting that in verse 20, which follows, says this, look to God's instructions and teachings. People who contradict this word are completely in the dark. The Bible is inviting us to seek God for guidance, for spiritual guidance, if we have some uh, problems. You know, Satan is very cunning. And he will use all his tricks to deceive us. And I will say, let's make sure on which side are we. 
Absolutely. So God advises us to seek him for guide, go to him for guide, spiritual guidance. Why does God say not to go looking for guidance from the dead? Lydia, I think you've got some insight there for us. Uh, yes, we have a verse in Leviticus chapter 19, verse 31, when God speaks and he says, do not turn to mediums or seek out spiritists, for you will be defiled by them. I am the Lord your God. So being defiled, it means being polluted, taint, desecrated, profane, or damaged the purity or appearance that is, or being corrupt, the purity, contaminated with something, or detracted from its original nature. Very good. Some time ago, earlier this year, I was invited to join a Christian book stall at a psychic fair. I can tell you I was not very impressed with the other stall holders in this psychic fair. And there were about 11 fortune tellers. And I actually went around later in the program and I gave each person a book about somebody who had been involved in spiritualism and fortunately had managed to get out of it and she told his story. So I gave this book to uh, quite a few of the stall holders. The thought occurred to me, should I go around and get my fortune told by each of these 11 fortune tellers? Some had uh, tarot cards and things because I might have quite a varied fortune because I think some of those were probably genuine, had connections with the spirit world, and some just made things up. But I didn't do it because I thought, no, I don't want to dabble with this kind of people. You start dabbling and you can get caught, just like a fish sees a bait on a hook, it looks around, sooner or later it gets caught. So the best thing is to stay away from these types of things and those kinds of people. Mm. And Len, I will say not only the best thing, is the only thing to stay away. Yes, I agree. That's the safest. Now, Lydia has given us a really good definition of what it means to be defiled or tainted. Brenton, why would one be defiled? And who are these spirits that are being contacted? Are they the spirits of loved ones or something more sinister? Let's have a look at First Timothy 4 verse 1, Joe. It says, Now the Spirit speaketh expressly, that in the latter times some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. Now, to answer the first question, why would one be defiled? We believe that in... Uh, the life which we live here on this earth, you have two choices. You can either be under the control of Christ or you're under the control of someone else. People don't recognise that that someone else is actually under the control of Satan. Now, God said in the Old Testament to Moses and also the children of Israel, I am a holy God and you are to be holy people. 
Uh, in the New Testament, we are told that we are a select generation, a holy people, set apart unto God by associating with seances, tarots, clairvoyance, witchcraft, and all these other things. We are defiled in the sense that the deceiving spirits, Joe, that are operating behind the scenes here are taking us sometimes imperceptibly away from understanding God and his love for, for us. They're drawing them to themselves. The first thing that needs to be said about these spirits is that they are not the spirits of dead people. Um, we've dealt with this in previous studies. So I think we've covered enough territory now in the book of Ecclesiastes and other areas to identify that you were not able to contact the dead. Therefore, you have to ask yourself the question, if some apparition appears claiming to be your dead relative or whatever, who, who would it be? Uh, the obvious answer from what I've just read and also from something else I'll quote in just a second is that it's one of Satan's angels impersonating the dead. Now, in First Chronicles 10, it says this, So Saul died because he was unfaithful to the Lord. He failed to obey the Lord's command, and he even consulted a medium instead of asking the Lord for guidance. So the Lord killed him and turned the kingdom over to David, the son of Jesse. I believe the purpose primarily of, the, of this deception and how we can be defiled is the whole purpose of Satan's uh, deceptions is to turn people away from the one who offered us eternal life. John 3.16 tells us if we believe in Jesus, we have eternal life. Satan's objective is to steer us, sometimes ever so imperceptibly, away from following Christ. And the end thereof, we are told that to the ends thereof are the ways of death. So there are two ways, following Jesus and being faithful, as Len said to him, or following another path which may on the surface appear to be exciting, uh, different, but the ends thereof are the ways of death. So ultimately we will either be following Jesus and receive eternal life or we'll be following this other path which we believe leads to eternal death. Mm, thank you for that. Now Lynn gave us a, a, a brief outline of the the spiritual reawakening and during that spiritual reawakening many gravitated towards spiritualism because like traditional religions it believed in the immortality of the soul unlike traditional religions it did not call for blind faith in the sense that skeptics felt they could see concrete proof of an afterlife by att attending a seance spiritualism emphasized personal experience over a thus saith the Lord, or what does the Bible say about this? Another example of where a mystical personal experience is so overwhelmingly convincing are NDEs, and these often, if not always, override plain statements in Scripture. Lynn, what is an NDE? Are they a <laughs> foretaste of heaven? No, are they proof not. of an afterlife? Definitely not. An NDE, NDE stands for near-death experience. They are real. When somebody is extremely traumatized in the process of dying, whether it's uh, from an accident or just um, something else, 
when a person's some people experience this phenomena where it seems as if sometimes they're experiencing something which is not normally experienced in everyday life. What we normally hear about them is that these people are supposedly clinically dead at the time they have this experience, and they're quite common. And some people experience uh, soft music, a floating sensation, uh, like as if they're out of their body looking back at themselves. They might uh, have a, a sped-up flashback of their lives. There's all sorts of things like that. Uh, what we normally hear about is the nice things. Yet some near-death experiences are definitely the opposite of that. They're frightening, marked by intense terror, anguish, loneliness and despair. Now, these, these near-death experiences are used by some to try to support the idea that man or the life of human beings is immortal. We know that the Bible says we are not immortal, not yet, not until Jesus comes again when he gives immortality. I want to say this, that these near-death experiences, the people are not actually dead. They are almost dead, but not quite dead. Sometimes their hearts may have stopped beating. Sometimes there may be very uh, little electric electrical activity in the brain. But the dead do not speak. The dead do not think. The Bible tells us over and over again, and I'll read Ecclesiastes 9 verse 5, for the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing. Now, some of these people have been resuscitated and they've recounted their experience, but they were not dead when they had that experience. They were almost dead. And then going on in Ecclesiastes, it says, Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. For in the grave where you're going, there is neither working nor planning, nor knowledge, nor wisdom. Mm. So NEDs are real experiences. And although the people may be classified as clinically dead, they are not dead because when someone dies, there is absolutely no mental activity whatsoever. So it's often reported about these people were out of their bodies and saw themselves. And this is like, okay, the spirit is floating away from the body. And I want to tell you that these NDEs, while those experiences are real and are related to people, who were resuscitated, that the person was not actually dead. And it can, they cannot be used, although they are being used, to show that mankind is immortal. It's wrong, mm -hmm. like anti-biblical. What's interesting about NDEs is if you do a little research on them, you realise that it's not just Christians who um, can have NDEs. It can be Buddhists, it can be um, Confucianists, it can be uh, Hinduists. In fact, um, NDEs occur 
across a fairly wide spectrum of beliefs and, and systems, which in itself is rather interesting. One of the things that I find particularly interesting is your belief system seems to have, based on some of the research that I've read, your belief system seems to have or can have a significant influence, Joe, on um, this NDE that you actually suffer. Let me give you an illustration very quickly. A friend of mine, I have used this illustration before, but it's appropriate here. A friend of mine who's a policeman, uh, he had a friend in the police force who, who had a large growth removed on the operating table. Now, this man died twice while he was on the operating table. In other words, he was what we describe as clinically dead for a, a short period of time. When he, when they actually revived him and he came to again, my friend was sharing with me that he had a number of ministers and people who believed in the immortal soul asking him what the experience was like. And he said, quite frankly, I don't remember anything. I remember going into the operating theatre. Uh, they put the needle in my arm and I don't remember anything until I was back in the resuscitation ward again. Now, did this man have a religious experience? I'm not aware whether he did or not, but he certainly had nothing to report. And I think further down the track in our study today, we're going to touch on this regarding someone else. It seems that people who do experience them, and I believe there's only a small percentage, only like 10 at the most 20% of these traumatic um, experiences, well, you know, when the body's ex under extreme conditions and um, there's a whole lot of you know, retinal ischemia that sees that tunnel vision, systemic acidosis, whole heap of, of things that possibly happen and contribute to this. Yes. They take that, and especially if they've spoken to, you know, their departed, you know, like their mum or their dad who'd passed on. And then, of course, some have even spoken to God or an angel. And so they take that to be that this is what it will be like. You know, if they were to have died, this would have continued and they would have enjoyed this paradise. However, Scripture does give us a number of examples of people who have died and been resurrected from dead. Jerry, one in particular I'm thinking of was Lazarus, who had been dead for four days and was who was rotting, basically, in that warm climate. Did he have anything to say about what had happened to him? Had he been to heaven? You, you don't read any account of uh, Lazarus coming back with fantastic stories of what it was like up there. In fact, um, let, let's go back to the Bible first. And, and I know we've, we've quoted some verses already, but uh, there are so many that talk about our condition in death. And uh, perhaps one of them that we haven't looked at is, um, is found in Psalm 6, verse 5, where it says, For in death there is no remembrance of you in the grave who will give you thanks and further in um in psalm 13 verse 3 it says it talks about the sleep of death and again there's quite a few of them in the, in the psalms psalm 115 verse 17 says the dead do not praise the lord now wouldn't you think that if lazarus had been to heaven and seen the glories of heaven and the and the beauties of paradise that he would be full of praise. In fact, it's quite the opposite. He has nothing to say when he is resurrected about a a place of, of, of pure bliss and holiness and, and and delight. Not a word, not a whisper. He wasn't in heaven. 
he was in the grave, unconscious of anything that was happening around him. And by the way, wouldn't it have also been terribly cruel to call him back from heaven? Wouldn't this earth be, by comparison, like a valley of tears compared to the glories of heaven? And God wouldn't do that. So not only in Lazarus' case, but there are many others we know from from the, the Gospels that Jesus actually resurrected a number of people from the dead. Jairus's daughter, the ruler's daughter, um, the widow's son, and so forth, they didn't have any stories to tell about where they'd been. They were unconscious in death, and that, that is the biblical truth. And we have to always go back to what the Bible teaches. Absolutely. Now, he'd been dead for four days. He wasn't in that twilight zone. He'd been dead for four days, so um, there was ample time for him to be in heaven and communicating with, you know, if this was what happened. But as you said, there was silence. There was nothing. It was asleep. Now, although NDEs remain controversial, uh, many Christians, as we have said, have used them as evidence for the immortality of the soul and the idea that the de- after death or at death, the soul goes on to another realm of conscious existence. However, there is another aspect to this, and that is reincarnation. This is a common and accepted belief among some religions. And um, Will, would you like to shed some light on what is reincarnation, the idea behind it? Well, if the soul or the spirit never dies, then it has to go somewhere, they say. In reincarnation or transmigration, as it's sometimes called, it is believed that uh, by many that the soul or the spirit can graduate or morph or evolve to higher and higher levels of knowledge and status in its journey toward perfection. Hindus believe that the eternal soul goes through a progression of consciousness or samsara in six classes of life, aquatics, plants, reptiles, insects, birds, animals, even human beings, including residents in heaven. Well, I can't say too much about reincarnation, but major religions that hold belief in reincarnation are Hinduism, Jainism, Buddhism and Sikhism, all of which are believed to have arisen in India. Now, in in my thinking, um, one thing that I've struggled with is reincarnation does not explain the rise in world population. It should be the other way around, shouldn't it? If souls are graduating into merging with the oblivion and escaping reality um i'm not yeah it's just to me i just didn't think it kind of made sense that um you know how do you explain these all these new souls now there are a number of reasons why the teaching of reincarnation is not in harmony with scripture and we will consider one at a time nick can you lead out uh sure um uh joe and it's important to look in the Bible to really understand uh, what's all about. Uh, I'm reading from First um, uh, uh, Thessalonians chapter 4 and from verse 13 onwards. It will be worth it also to check some other translations, but I'm reading from uh, New King James. And Apostle Paul says here, But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, 
lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. Verse 14, it's a very important one to consider because people may draw some um, uh, conclusion and even theology out of this. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. And people may say, okay, uh uh-huh, God will bring back to this earth with him, those who are in in heaven or in in their souls. But it's not what it says, this verse, actually. In verse 15, for this we say to you, by the word of the Lord, that we are alive and remain until coming the coming of the Lord. And by all means, we will not proceed before those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will arise first. They are not coming down from heaven. They will arise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. You see, we need to look in the context of the passage, not just pick up uh, one verse and uh, make out of it uh, an entire uh, uh, belief. Okay, so the second theory, um, or the second biblical um, doctrine that's uh, negated by reincarnation is the doctrine of salvation by faith uh, in the redemptive work of Jesus Christ. So in Ephesians 2, 8 to 10, it says from the NIV version, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship created in Jesus Christ to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Beautiful. Lydia. Uh, There is a third uh, uh, theory, and um, I would like to give a brief example that Jesus gives as a parable of the wedding banquet. So um, Jesus is saying that uh, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who prepared a wedding banquet for his son and he sent his servants to all those who have been invited to the banquet to tell them uh, that everything is ready. So the servants went and invited those um, invites, but they they did not pay attention and they went off, one to his field, another to his business. And the rest sized his servants, mistreated them, and killed them. So the king was enraged, and he sent his army and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he sent to his servants to the streets to invite all those who wants to come. So they, he said, go to the streets corner and invite to the banquet anyone you find. So they went and they gathered all the people they could find, both good and bad, and the wedding hall was filled with guests. And the second um, example uh, is found in Matthew 
chapter 25, verse 31 to 46. It's um, a parable of the sheep and goats. So it says that uh, the Son of Man uh, will separate uh, the sheep and the goats. It means the good and the bad people, the good on the right and the bad on the left. Um, and the king uh, will say to those who are good, come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you come to visit me. So the, the righteous were very surprised and they, they said, um, when, when, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and gave you something to drink? When we see you a stranger and invite you in or needed clothes and clothe you? So the king replied, I tell you the truth, whenever you did for one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did it for me. So uh, this is an example of practical religion. Uh, and also in James one twenty seven, it says, True religion is to look after the orphans and widows in their distress and keep them in the in the line of uh, of living. So this is an, a, a, a pure example of um, that one eternal's destiny is decided forever by one's decision in his life. So it's about my decision that I take. Mm. Thank you, Lydia. Nick, I think you touched on this a little bit in your first one. There's a fourth where reincarnation downplays um, the meaning and the relevance of Christ's second coming. Did you want to comment on that further? Yes, yeah, sure. Uh, and um, I may just um, look at um, uh, the Gospel of John and in uh, chapter 14, I'll read verses 1 to 3. Because I, I believe this is important and uh, supports what we just uh, said a bit earlier. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have, have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. And receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. I think this is very important because if when we die, we go straight into heaven, then what's the point of Jesus to come back to receive uh, us to himself and give us the inheritance, what he had prepared for us? You see, we can uh, pick up on certain um, wording in the Bible and, and keep in mind that we have today where lots of people use translations of the Bible and a lot of the meaning can be lost if you don't look in the context of the whole story or the whole teaching about that uh, subject. I believe it's very important, again I'm saying this, to stick with the Bible. We are dealing with the end time deceptions and many people today they uh, just um, trust in what they hear. 
from others or even go on the internet and things like that. But less and less people are searching and studying the Bible thoroughly. Mm. Or does it depend on tradition, the traditions of where they've been brought up or mm. which fam, you know, which church their family attend? Um, Lynn, you have a fifth that contradicts the Bible. Yes, and that's the idea of second chance. Wouldn't people love to have a second chance? They've made a mess of their lives, rejected the offer of grace from God, and so the second chance theory has been developed. We discussed this somewhat last week. But the Bible says in Hebrews 9 verse 27, man is destined to die once. And after that, to face judgment. So this second chance theory is also part of the lie that Satan told in the Garden of Eden, you shall not surely die. God Mm. said you will. Satan said you won't. And it's interesting how many things have developed from that lie that he told. Mm. Now, large portions of the world believe in reincarnation. But as we can see, its teaching contradicts the word of God on many levels, as has been said. And in summary, it contradicts the sleep of soul in death, um, that we are saved by works and not by grace. There's only one opportunity to determine our destiny, and that's by the choices that we make. And what would be the point of the second coming of Christ? because it's an endless cycle, isn't it? Mm. And, of course, Len, as you have so well put, there is no second chance. Make the most of this one. You know, another one that's quite a uh, belief that is quite, well, how shall I say, ubiquitous, particularly in the East, is ancestor worship, and in Africa too. Brenton, what does anst- ancestor worship involve? Basically, it involves praying for or on behalf of your uh, dead relatives and friends. Um, if I can define it in very, very simple terms, uh, within Christianity, we have something called All Souls Day. All Souls Day is a day upon which you remember your departed relatives uh, in the sense and the reason, the reason overall, Joe, whether it's Christian, and there are other religions that also pray to the dead. The primary purpose of praying to the dead is this. They pray to the dead so that they keep on the good side of them. In other words, you have to believe in an immortal soul, that your loved ones are still in some form functioning in order to keep on the right side of them and ensure success in life and a favour in life. It's necessary to pray to them. Now, This is where it becomes rather, rather interesting because we have discovered so far in our studies that the dead know nothing. One of the texts that we have discussed today says something along the lines of they have no more a reward for the memory of them is forgotten. So if they have no more reward, how are they able to influence those of us who are still alive here on the earth? David made a statement when his son died, when his servant said to him, look, while your um, while your son was sick, you were mourning. And he said, well, he's dead now. 
And he said, there's no point in me mourning anymore. I may as well eat and drink and put on good clothes and all the rest of it because he can't come back to me, but one day I will go to him. Job 14.21 says his sons, that's the deceased, come to honour and he doesn't know it. They are brought low and he knows nothing about it. So in summary, ancestor worship or ancestor um, veneration or whatever term you want to use for it in whatever culture is based on the presupposition that your dead relatives in some way can influence your life. Can I suggest that for our, for ourselves and also for our listeners, this, can I suggest that Proverbs 3, 5 and 6 would be a better option to think of? Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. I believe that if we as a panel and our listeners followed that advice, that is certainly going to keep us on the straight and narrow because we will be following what God wants us to do. And we know that God's ultimate ambition for us is all that we be saved in the kingdom of heaven. So I think in summary, it's sad but true that many people throughout the world do believe in ancestor worship. They go to graves. You've, you've been, Joe, to graves where you've seen um, flowers, you've seen Crime. food. You've seen various things placed on graves. All of this is is affected by ancestor worship. If only we would accept what the Bible teaches, that our loved one is sleeping, they know nothing, and that one day soon Jesus is going to come again. What a glorious day. And I think, I think that's where we should be putting our focus. Yeah. Whom does the Bible say we are to worship and worship only? Jerry? Yeah, in... Um Isaiah 45, verse 5, it says, I am the Lord, and there is no other. There is no God besides me. You know, people from the, the beginning of time have, have turned whatever they could think of almost into a God to be worshipped, whether it's something made of stone or wood, and they they bow down and worship it. They uh, offer sacrifices to, to please their God. And even in our time, nothing really much has changed. We see that the environment today is given godlike status and nature worship, worship is, is the new religion of the day. And we hear expressions from leading religious figures, even like the Pope, who says uh, or refers to uh, Mother Earth and Brother Wind. So what, what is happening is that the created, that which you can see and touch, has replaced the creator. Yeah. And... And we should have, we should be very careful of that because it's, you know, this pattern is, uh, you can see it throughout the scripture. When we look at the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness, and it's found in Matthew chapter four, uh, where Satan tries to tempt Jesus. And finally, in frustration, when it doesn't work the first two times, he says in, uh, in, in chapter four, verse uh, nine, it's, that says here, and he said to them, all these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. And then Jesus said to him, away with you, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only you shall serve. So now Jesus, of course, is the ultimate authority. And uh, he, he, he says, there is only one God, only one God. And, um, and the only God is the creator God. 
the God of Israel, who is worthy of worship. And we need to listen to what Jesus says, I believe. Okay. Um, thanks, Jerry. If we base, base our beliefs and faith in something which is a deception, we will not be able to stand um, we will not be able to stand in a day when we come to rely on it most. Jesus told a parable to reflect something very important mm-hmm. for the time that we are living. Denise, could you briefly summarize this parable and how it how it should impact and how is it relevant today? Giorgio, um, in Matthew 7, verses 21 to 27, Jesus told a parable about a house that was built on the rock, which represented his teachings and the teachings of the Bible, and a house built on the sand, which was anything other than beliefs other than the Bible. And when the winds and the storms came, the house on the rock stood firm. It wasn't moved. It wasn't blown away, but the house on the sand was obliterated. So this is how we can explain this. There is a strong tendency in postmodern Christian world to downplay the relevance of biblical doctrines. People often regard them as tedious echoes of an obsolete form of religion. In this process, the teachings of Jesus are artificially replaced by the person of Christ. And people argue, for instance, that some biblical story or another cannot be true because Jesus, as they perceive him, would never have allowed that to happen. Personal feelings end up being the criteria for interpreting the scriptures or even for rejecting outright what the Bible clearly teaches. Often doctrines about obedience to God, which, as Jesus said, is so essential to building one's house on the rock. People who think that it matters not what they believe regarding doctrine, so long as they believe in the person of Jesus, are on dangerous ground. Hence, any variation to the truth, even though it may appeal to our spiritual nature, our intellectual pride, as well as our physical appetites, could be our downfall. And the house tumbling down are not actual structures, are they? They're our lives, our faith, our hopes, and our future. And we cannot afford to believe a lie, no matter how pleasing. Brenton, uh, can you just give us a very brief um, admonition from God's word as to how we could um, protect ourselves from delusions and false theories and deceptions? Yes. Paul uses the illustration, Joe, in Ephesians chapter 6. Many of us have read it. Starts at verse 10, goes through to about verse 19. It goes through all the pieces of armour that a Roman soldier would wear. And Paul uses these pieces of armour to illustrate various aspects of the Christian life and of the only way in which we can stand firm against Satan's enticements and deceptions. One of the main ones he uses is put on the shield to have the shield of the spirit whereby you can quench the fiery darts of the evil one. I think in summary we can say this. If you want to stand firm in the last days, you must have on the whole armour of God. How can you have on the whole armour of God? Read Ephesians chapter 6, apply the various aspects of equipment that Paul uses, pray about them and ask the Lord to give them to you, then you will be impregnable against the assaults of Satan. Thank you. I'd like to conclude with the story of the Winchester Mystery House, which was built by Sarah Winchester, widow and heiress of the Winchester Rifle Fortune. 
at the turn of the 20th century. It has approximately 24,000 square feet, seven stories, hundreds of rooms, thousands of doors, and scores of stairways and fireplaces. The story is that Sarah built it on the advice of a psychic in order to escape the tormented spirits of all those who, ki- who were killed by Winchester rifles. She held nightly seances in a special room, and this spirit advised her um, what to build next. She believed that she must build every day, which went on for 38 years around the clock, because for the, mo- from the moment she stopped building, she would die. As a result, the whole house is a crazy jumble of doors and windows and corridors and stairways to nowhere, twisted passages, hidden chambers. It is the result of a tragic obsession and devotion to the supernatural combined with endless money. Now, just imagine how different her life might have been had she known and believed the truth that the dead know nothing, that she was being tormented by an evil spirit. She would have been spared much anxiety and needless suffering. And I believe, Will, you actually visited that place. Yes, Mm. I spent some time there, Joe. Wish we had more time to discuss it. I'd like to conclude by just a, a repetition of someone may say to you, let's ask the mediums and those who consult the spirits of the dead with their whisperings and mutterings. They will tell us what to do, but shouldn't people ask God for guidance? Should the living seek guidance from the dead? Jesus invites us to come to him. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest, and you shall find rest unto your souls. We need not be deceived. Jesus says, I am the way, the only way, and the truth, and the life. If we are looking for answers, for peace, for rest, let us go to the living God for guidance, because the dead know nothing. Will, would you like to close with a prayer, please? Of course. Dear Heavenly Father, your word admonishes us, living in these last days of earth's history. Take heed, lest any man deceive you, for false Christs and false prophets shall arise and shall show signs and wonders to seduce, if possible, even the elect. O Lord, we want to stand among the elect, but we know that our only hope is to be firmly grounded in the truths of your word. Lord, help us to this end. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Thank you, everyone, for your participation today. Indeed, we dealt with some very important passages about uh, end-time deceptions. But my dear friend, uh, listening today, will invite you to join us again next time when we are going to look at the biblical uh, world view and uh, the model of uh, Jesus. We are going to search a little bit about the body as a temple and uh, learn about the mind of Christ, the guidance of the Spirit, and uh, ready for His appearing. May God bless you, and um, continue to walk in the footsteps of Jesus, and trust in God and in His Word.